When I became a Christian, uh, I was told straight away that one of the main things Christians are meant to do is tell those who aren't Christians about Jesus. And we tell them about Jesus because Jesus told us to. Uh, he came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And it's the king of heaven proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And then he said before he died, uh, he gave the great commission that we were to go into all the world, to every people group, and make disciples of every nation. And uh, uh, the story of the early church was a church that they went on missionary journeys, they planted churches, and they proclaimed Christ, uh, even to the point of uh, giving up their lives. And the word for martyr um, is, is, literally means witness. Uh, the word can be translated one of two ways. A martyr is a witness. So when I heard about this, when I read this, and I was keen, and I wanted to tell people about Jesus, the only problem was I was 15 and I was shy. So I didn't know how, I was a bit scared to go up to people. And in those days, and we are talking a long time ago, um, we're talking way into the previous century. Uh, Jesus stickers were really popular. Those of you that are older, you might remember there was the one uh, that was uh, a red one, and it's, it was uh, um, after the Coca-Cola advert, Jesus Christ, he's the real thing. Then there was another one uh, that was one way Jesus with the finger pointing up. Um, then there was another one, I, there were a whole bunch of them. There were a whole bunch of them. Jesus is Lord was one. And I went to the Christian bookshop that was still open at that time in Harrow. And uh, I bought, I thought, I'm going to be a witness. So I bought loads of these stickers. And I went round all the streets around where I lived. And I stuck these stickers everywhere as my act of witness. I stuck them on lampposts. I stuck them on dustbins. I ran up to people's front doors and stuck them on their front doors and ran away. Uh, I, 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 I stuck them on people's car windscreens. I went everywhere. And I remember there was one particular street. It's funny how the things you remember. It was called Regal Way. And uh, I really particularly felt passionate about that because Jesus is the king. And I was sticking stickers about the king in Regal Way. And then I got to the end, when I stuck them everywhere, I would stand at the end of the street, whatever street it was, and I would pray for all the passers-by. And I imagined that one of them would see one of my stickers and suddenly fall on their knees in repentance and give their life to Jesus. Well, that didn't happen. But eventually, I ran out of my supply. And I went back to the Christian bookshop in Harrow. And uh, I went to replenish. And this is absolutely true. As I was there waiting, as I went in, the lady behind the counter who was running the bookshop was talking to another lady, and I overheard them saying, the lady said, whoever's doing this, when we find out who it is, there's going to be trouble. <laughs> and she said, all the neighborhood are coming in and complaining to us because this cr stupid Christian is defacing people's property with, with, with these stickers and we're spending our spare time trying to peel these things off and I stood there and it was and then she said these words she said it's such a bad witness and yeah it was like oh and all I wanted to do was be a good witness and I just left without buying anything 
And that was the end of part one of my life as an evangelist. <laughs> part two came when I was at university. And um, everyone knows there's uh, two great universities in this country. There's Oxford University and there's Birmingham University. <laughs> and uh, I was at one of them and it wasn't Oxford. <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, I, again, I, I, I got trained by a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. Anyone remember them? Yes, two, three. And um, they had this booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. And I got trained in how to evangelize with the four spiritual laws. It was a little booklet with diagrams. And, and uh, the law number one was you are a sinner. Uh, law number two, I can't remember what the other laws were now. Uh, but, but there was four laws. And you could summarize the gospel in four laws. So I was really keen. And I used to go into, it was called the refectory in those days, the, 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 the student restaurant, the student canteen. And I'd get my tray, I'd put my food on. And then I'd look round. I had these booklets bulging out of my pockets. And I would look round for a victim. And I'd, I'd look for someone on their own who had been detached from the herd. And I would go up and sit opposite them and put my tray down and smile at them. And they would look up and look slightly startled and smile at me and look down. And then after a while, they'd look up again, and I'd still be smiling. <laughs> and it unnerved them. And, and I thought it was them coming under conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then I, said to, I would say to them, have you heard of the four spiritual laws? I could see fear in their eyes. And I took that as a good sign. And they said, I don't think so, no. And I said, would you like me to explain them to you? And what could they say? They were trapped. And they said, oh, okay. And then I would go and sit next to them, take out my booklet, and go through the four spiritual laws with them and ask them where they were. Which law were they at? And it took me a while to work out, after about three or four months, why whenever I went into the student restaurant, it emptied. And I would end up always sitting on my own. That was part two of my attempt as an evangelist for Jesus Christ. So, having confessed that, let's look at how Jesus did it. And uh, I think he had a bit more success than I did. And I want to look in John chapter 4. Uh, it's a familiar story. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, Jesus um, is going from um, Judea in the south of Israel to Galilee in the north, and he has to go through Samaria. He could have gone the long way all around the outside, but he goes through Samaria, and most religious Jews wouldn't even set foot in Samaria, and, and if they did, they certainly wouldn't stop to talk to a Samaritan, because Samaritans were regarded as just not, you know, they were, they were not, they were not, they were the wrong race, um, they were the wrong religion, and um, more than that, they were regarded as very, very, I mean, ignorant, and not, you know, a, a bit like people think of Hemel Hempstead people now. <laughs> I thought I'd get that one in again. And, uh, and, and they were regarded as, as beyond the pale. 
And religious Jews, there was three things. A, a, a religious Jew would not begin a conversation with a Samaritan. Would certain, a male, a religious male, would not begin a conversation with a woman in public. It just wasn't done. And thirdly, religious Jews were told to keep away from sinners and to keep away from people who were, who were not living a, a godly and a good life. And Jesus finds himself sitting at a well outside a town called Sychar. And uh, he's tired. And he sends the disciples into Sychar town to buy lunch. And for a while I wondered, why, why would he send all of the disciples to buy lunch? Was it a big lunch? I mean, sandwiches from Sainsbury's, it doesn't take 12 of them. And then I thought about who the disciples were and I thought, yeah, it probably did take 12 of them. But he was sitting there, and then a woman came. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Oh, I'll stop there. I've read a little bit of scripture. But I want to now tell you how Jesus began his evangelistic ministry. How he began to witness to her. He didn't take out the four spiritual laws and ask her where she was. He didn't ask her if she'd been washed in his blood. He didn't ask her if she'd wondered about her eternal destiny. He did something revolutionary. This is a brilliant technique. And this is the technique that we want to use in this church. You may want to note this down. Here's how Jesus began to witness to her. Are you ready? He said, can I have a drink of water please? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? The reason it's amazing is because she was there to draw water. She was interested in water. And he began where she was. He started a conversation in the area that interested her. And he asked her for something. He didn't say, can I tell you what I can give you? He dignified her. He dignified her by saying, could you give me something? This is, this is the author of H2O. This is the guy who invented water. He could have snapped his fingers and, and gallons of San Pellegrino would have rained down from the sky. And he asks this Samaritan woman for a glass of water. And she's shocked. For Jews do not associate. How can you ask me for a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Ha Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So she says, that's two strikes. You, you've, broken, you've broken the convention. You've broken the culture. But then he's broken the third one as well. Because they start talking about water and if you read the, script, the, the story, then they get talking about living water. And then the conversation goes to worship. I mean, how did he manage that? How did he, he starts with water and then he goes to worship. How did he do that? Do you know how he did it? When he went to theological college, they taught him about preaching. And how you have to start all your points with the same letter. Were water, were worship. No, 
I lied. That's not how it happened. He starts with water and then she brings up the subject of worship. Why does she suddenly bring up the subject of worship? I'll tell you. Because, because when she arrived there, she was only interested in water. But after a conversation with Jesus, it stirred something in her, a longing for understanding of living water and worship. And it happened in two ways. First of all, he's the first person for as long as she can remember who treated her as a normal human being, who didn't dismiss her, who treated her with dignity and respect, with compassion and mercy and tenderness and kindness. And the reason he was the first one is because he says to her, we find out, he says to her, well, we're having a very interesting conversation about water. Why don't you pop back home into Sica and bring your husband and then the three of us can, can continue to have a conversation about the properties of water? And then she thinks, oh no, if I tell him the truth, he'll reject me like everyone else. The, and then, so he said to go, her, go and call your husband and come back. And then she decides that she'll tell a half-truth, which of course we know is a lie. I have no husband, she replied. At this point, Jesus reveals her secret shame and her secret sin. He exposes it. I love it when secret sin and shame are exposed publicly in the church. We may do that a little bit later on. <laughs> and here's how he does it. Listen to how he does it. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Just listen to how he, he reveals her secret shame and sin. Listen to this. He says, and I'm going to slightly exaggerate it to make the point. You are quite right when you say you have no husband. Put a tick by the no husband answer. The fact is, you've had five husbands, which is a little more than the quota allowed. And the man you're now living with is not your husband. You are quite right in what you say. And this sinful woman who is full of shame thinks, I got it right. I got it right. Only Jesus, only Jesus can reveal our sin, our shame, and our brokenness. And at the same time, at the same time, affirm us as people made in his image, as sinners whom he loves. And look at how he did it with such tenderness. And we find out now that the reason, you know, in those days, a, a, a woman should not have been on her own drawing water. Women in those days would go together to draw water 
for safety and protection and also companionship. Like ladies today, go to the toilet together. It's the same thing. I've noticed, we, we find it strange. Um, and, uh, and then secondly, they, she wouldn't have gone in the middle of the day not when it's boiling hot. She'd have gone in the cool, they'd have gone in the cool of the morning. She's on her own in the middle of the day. And the reason is because she's had five failed marriages. And in that culture, a woman cannot divorce a man. Only a man can divorce a woman. She had been rejected by five different men who threw her away. We don't know why. And the sixth man, it was like, this is too hard. This is too hard to get married. I'm going to stick like this. And she was full of shame. And she was there on her own in the middle of the day because the respectable woman, women of the town, wouldn't, wouldn't let her go with them. She was the outcast. And to be divorced in those days was absolute, in that culture, she was the outcast. And Jesus dignified her. And what happened was, he was good news to her. The way he loved her, the way he treated her. You still treat me as a human being, even though you know you're not going to dismiss me. You're not going to reject me. You want to continue. You began a conversation with me. You asked me, knowing what I'm like, to give you a drink Wow. And so she starts asking about worship. There's an apocryphal story. I hope it's true because it's such a good one. But I don't know for sure. There was a student at university who went, into, went to the toilet and was in a cubicle. And um, certainly years ago when I heard this story, um, students would all write loads of graffiti on toilet cubicles and Usually it was about the size of things and various other things. And he thought he would add his Christian graffiti um, to, uh, um, uh, to all the other graffiti. And he just wrote, Jesus is the answer. And like me with my sticker, he was quite pleased with himself. I've witnessed. He left the toilet cubicle. He happened in the next week or two to be back in the same cubicle. It's funny how we always go to the same cubicle, isn't it? Okay, I go to the same. <laughs> Never mind. And, and he sat down and he saw his question. His, he saw his statement. Jesus is the answer. And he saw that underneath someone had written, but what is the question? And that's the point. So often we Christians are saying Jesus is the answer to a people who are not asking the question. And my friends, our lives are meant to raise the questions. The way we live, the way we love, the way we serve, the way we are filled with compassion and kindness, with generosity and mercy, is meant to cause people to think, you know, this person is good news. We can't preach good news and be bad news. We can't, it doesn't work. 
if they're not asking the question, they're not going to be listening when we say Jesus is the answer. And this is what we try to do in this church in every way, is to be good news to the community around us. And yeah, I believe in preaching the gospel, but I believe the Bible says we're to be the gospel. Jesus didn't just say good news, he was good news. Everywhere he went, and he was good news to the poor and the broken. He was good news to those who were filled with shame. And she would have been filled with shame and he gave her dignity. He treated her like a human being. We have a kind of, over the years, I've watched the what we say to our youth workers and then what we really mean that we don't say to our youth workers. And I'm just being honest here. Uh, it's not what we say here, but in lots of places, uh, it's what we have said. And I felt the pressure when I was a, a youngish youth worker years ago. What we want as parents um, is we say to our youth worker, can you keep our young people from those nasty influences out there? So can you create an alternative Christian universe where our young people are safe. So can you put on Christian parties so they don't have to go to those other parties where there are illegal substances and horrible things. And so we, we, we have Christian parties with orange squash and quiche. And oh, it's so exciting. And and icebreaker games, you know, like Marshmallow Wars for 17-year-olds, for goodness sakes, you know, and we wonder why they think they've come to a children's tea party. And we say to them, you don't, you've got to keep yourselves away from those nasty people and those nasty places. Keep safe, keep away. And of course, when we do that, what do you think they think? They think, oh, that sounds interesting. And it doesn't work, folks. The reason I don't want to do that is it doesn't, it's never worked. It's never worked. And there's, there's a better way. There is a much better way. And that's what we sometimes do in the church. We're safe in the church where we, we, we keep away from all the stuff that's going on um, out, out there. We're like, we're like, we're in the castle of the church where everything's safe and the drawbridge up is up and we have our, our parallel existence and then we suddenly realise, oh, we're meant to be witnessing, we're meant to be doing mission. So we think, what do we do? We'll, we'll have a mission week and we prepare for the mission week and we practise telling each other our testimonies until we're word perfect for when we get out there to be at them. And then we practice our Christian drama for the streets and our Christian dance <laughs> and our Christian mime. And then when we're ready, we let down the drawbridge of the castle of the church and we all run out there for a whole week and we do things at them. At the end of the week, we run back into the castle 
dragging two or three that miraculously somehow we've captured and we pull up the drawbridge and then we do something that we call discipleship at them at the end of which they can't communicate with non-Christians either and we call that evangelism let me tell you who invented that strategy the devil from hell invented it from the church that's not what Jesus taught us we are not called to let down the drawbridge of the castle of the church once a year to go and do things at them we're to break down the walls of the church we're to be a church without walls we're meant to be a church for the community a church that loves and serves a church that gets our hands dirty a, a church that lives with a little bit of mess because we're with messy people and for our young people, a better strategy than trying to keep them away is to get them so in love with Jesus, so in love with his cause. He, you know, to, to love Christ, his cause, and his church. To tell them what the scripture says, that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And instead of being afraid, go get them. Go get them. Go to those places and when they get off their faces and when they get drunk be there to help them home and to make sure they're safe when at two o'clock in the morning they spill the beans about what's going on in their lives and how hopeless they feel be there to listen and to love them and to be to be the best friend they could ever have the gates of hell will not prevail against the church as the church goes forward. We want to love the world around us because he loves the world. We've got to love what he loves and we mustn't be afraid anymore. We mustn't be afraid. And I'm just trying to give the reason we try and do lots of the things that we do. This Samaritan woman she goes back to Sychar, and this is amazing. She tells the town, she says to the town, uh, come and meet a man who told me I ever did, uh, everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She gave her testimony in a culture where a woman's testimony was not valid in a court of law, she gave her testimony. The outcast, they won, the one they wouldn't even go to the well with, the one that they said, she's a husband stealer, be careful of her. The one who she gave, she, she had the honor of being the first ever evangelist to Jesus Christ in the history of the church. First ever. Samaritan woman on at least her sixth bloke. And they come out to meet Jesus. They come out and, and they say, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. When the Samaritans, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, 
We no longer believe just because of what you said, but now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man truly is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. A town, a Samaritan town came to Jesus because of the one woman and because he was good news to her. And folks, everybody knows what the church is against. We've been really good at telling everyone what we're against. And some of it, it's right that we do. It's right that we speak for, 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 for morality that Jesus taught us. But it's time, it's time our world and it's time our country really knew what we're for. Really knew what we're for, even more than what we're against. It's time, it's time in a broken world People are looking to see, in a world that's full of secret shame, people are looking to see a church that will love those that no one else will love, a church that will care for those that no one else will care for because we're followers of Jesus and because we belong to him and because he's our Lord. We started this church 30 years ago. There was 11 of us in our first meeting. We met in... Uh, um, Andy and Mary Devers front room and I looked at the other 10 and I thought how is this ever going to become a church we didn't know what we were doing and I thought next week there'll be 11 of us next month there'll be 11 of us in six months there'll be 10 of us because one of us will have died you know it was like and then we were like we wanted to reach young people with the gospel and we didn't know how and then somebody said well where, 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 where do they hang out and then someone said, well, at school. And it was like, oh. So I wrote to all the schools in Watford. And I said, I I'm a pastor of a church in Watford. I didn't say there was 11 of us. Um, <laughs> um, um, and um, if you'd like me to do an assembly, I'm willing. Three schools were desperate enough. Queen's School, Palmerton School, and Watford Boys. They were desperate enough. And they asked me, so I went and, and I told a couple of jokes. I told a little bit of a moral story because I know you're not allowed to preach the gospel. And then I said, hey, we're a church in Watford. Um, we're starting on Friday nights a cafe called Dreg's Cafe. We're hiring a hall. There's going to be a band playing. They'll do covers of chart songs. Um, the, the equivalent 30 years ago of Nintendo Switch was something called Sega Mega Drive. Um, anyone, yeah, and we would have those and, and there'll be a tuck shop and there'll be um, karaoke and everything, you're very welcome and I said, even though we're Christians I promise you, if you come we will not try and convert you we will not tell you about Jesus to my amazement, they came they came and I said to our little team I said to the other ten I've made a promise if I catch any of you telling anyone about Jesus I will personally persecute you because <laughs> I've made a promise they came do you know what happened after a while they became our friends they started telling us what was going on in their lives they began to trust us the band did covers I remember uh, Matt Redman who was our first worship pastor uh, he led the band and um, they kept asking him to do Wonderwall every week. It was horrific, but he did it anyway. And then we would have karaoke. Um, there, was, there was one night we had a belching competition. 
Um, and um, this kid, we were in, a, we were in a, one half of a hotel function room with a dividing wall, and on the other half um, uh, was the restaurant, the hotel restaurant. And he did this incredible belch over the microphone, and he won. The end of the evening, the manager came and asked us if we would vacate. That was the last time the, the, the customers were complaining the other side of the wall. There was one night, one night we had a fancy dress evening. And I remember um, one of our girls, Sarah, uh, she came in this interesting green outfit. And then to my horror at the time, uh, one of the non-Christian girls turned up from one of the schools in an identical interesting green outfit. And I thought, this is embarrassing. I don't understand what they've come as. And then I saw them walking around arm in arm. And I went up to them in my tactful way. And I said, oh, that's embarrassing. You've come in identical, interesting green outfits. And this girl, she, she went like this. She said, no, no, Sarah and I, we went to the shops and we bought the material together. And we spent the week making these outfits. We've come as twins she said. Two weeks later, that girl gave her life to Jesus. And she did it in large part because Sarah cared enough to buy the material, to spend evenings creating the outfits so they could come as twins. Sarah was good news and she earned the right to speak good news. We saw loads of kids become Christians. We, they started telling us their problems. We would take them on outings. I mean, we did everything. And I wait, you know what? The, the, the moment came after a few months that I'd been waiting for, praying for, longing for. Some of them came up to me and said, there's a rumor that you're Christians. And I said, we might be. <laughs> and then they said, and that you meet on a Sunday night in Queen's School Hall as church. I said, yes. And then they said, if we wanted to, could we come? This is what I've been waiting for. Do you know what I said? I said, oh, you'd probably be bored. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> I was really taking a chance there. And, and then he said, well, if we're bored, we could leave. And I said, well, I suppose if you really want to come, I wouldn't stop you. They came they, that first Sunday night. And I remember... They looked around and we set up church in exactly the same way that we'd set up dregs. So the tables and chairs were exactly the same. The decor was the same. We used muslin and all sorts of other stuff. The same band that did Wonderwall on a Friday night did worship on a Sunday night. They walked in and they said, wait a minute, this is dregs. This is our place. And what we did is that we built a bridge between us and them and we walked across the bridge from us to them. And then we walked back with them. We walked back with them. And they met Jesus. And they became Christians. And a couple of them are still in this church. And uh, um, I, said, I said this, the, um, the first service. And afterwards, um, one of the girls in our church, she, she was crying she said, I used to come as a teenager. She said, it was my safe place. Sorry. She said, it was my safe place. It was the place that was safe for us. That's why, that's why 
We want to build bridges. We want to build bridges. That's why we do what we do. As Andy said, we want to open our cafe five days a week. And the reason we want to do it is not because we're bored and we haven't got anything else to do. It's because we want, we want, you know, people pass by and they come in and they say, what is this? Is this a cafe? And some come on some Monday and then they, they say, um, what, what, what is this? And when we say it's a church, they're shocked. They're shocked. That's why we, one of the reasons we have lots of parties. It's an excuse to invite people. We want to be good news, not just say good news. We want to be good news. And that's how the gospel works. Let's say Jesus is the answer to a people who are asking the question. It begins with water. Can I have a drink of water, please? And it ends with, can you tell me, explain to me about worship? That's it. That's it.